folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-B-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. All right, kids. Today's guest is making his second appearance on the farm, and I could not be more excited. He is a former contributor to Zero Books and the interdisciplinary web journal Modern Mythology. More recently, he's become the host of a little podcast known as the Parallax Views, if you may have heard of it. Folks, with great pleasure, I give you guys J.G. Michaels. Thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Hey, how's it going, uh, Stephen? And I'm really excited about the movie we're going to be talking about today. A uh, bit of a Western, bit of a horror movie, bit of an action movie, too. So it's a little bit of everything wrapped up into one. Yeah, it's going to be groovy, man. All right. So it's definitely more horror cinema this time around. And for those of you unaware of this, I'm not a big vampire fan. Frankly, I don't really go in for the subgenre unless we're talking about it. For me, that decade was undeniably the apex of the vampire film featuring My Holy Trinity. Bright Night, The Lost Boys, and Near Dark, the film which we will be discussing today, the latter that is to say. I'm just not a fan of Anne Rice's approach to vampires, which really came to dominate the mythos of the uh, the creature in the 90s. Uh, aside from Dust Till Dawn, there really hasn't been a vampire out since the 80s movie that grabbed me, with the exception of one that had occurred to me uh, after I wrote the initial script for this. Incidentally, it was also probably the last movie John Carpenter did worth a damn. It was Vampires uh, from 1990, which was another kind of interesting horror Western hybrid kind of take on the genre. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely like this, you know, kind of Southwestern approach to it. It's uh, something that, you know, probably should get more attention. I mean, the Western landscapes really lend themselves well to horror. And it seems like the recent Predator film has kind of further demonstrated this. And I just really go in for the kind of primal take on vampires. I just love the combination and wish more filmmakers would take a stab at mixing these genres. Anyway, so much for my views on vampire movies. With that out of the way, let us start the show.
All right, JG, the pink elephant in the middle of the room here is probably Catherine Bigelow when you talk about Near Dark and her later career as an unabashed propagandist for the American Empire. It's a role she may have taken on thanks to her ex-husband, one James Cameron. The Hurt Locker killed me on a number of levels. I couldn't even bring myself to watch Zero Dark Thirty, quite frankly. Uh, do you have anything to add about her recent career? I saw Zero Dark Thirty when it was in theaters. Um, I got dragged along to it by a cinephile friend of mine, and I nearly walked out of it. I was very, very angry with that movie. Um, I thought it was, I mean, to give credit where credit is due, I think Catherine Bigelow is a very, um, very talented, um, very technically oriented director. And I think she's very good at what she does. But I remember just wanting to, you know, throw a brick at the screen when I saw Zero Dark Thirty, uh, which of course was about the uh, torture program that the U.S. did and the eventual capture of um, Bin Laden. So, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think you summed it up pretty well. She kind of became a uh, mouthpiece for the uh, U.S. establishment when it comes to uh, our foreign interventions overseas. For me, the thing that makes Bigelow's latter efforts so painful is just how much promise she showed earlier in her career. As I noted previously, Near Dark is high in the rankings of my all-time favorite vampire movies. Um, but having grown up in the 90s, I have a soft spot as well for Point Break. Uh, you may be in that same boat, my friend. And uh, I really love Strange Days, which I consider to be one of the better sci-fi noirs made up to that point. And again, I'm a little biased on that. I love the combination of uh, film noir and science fiction. Dark uh, City is definitely one of my all-time favorite movies. But uh, I digress. What's your take on Bigelow's early career? I actually don't know that I've seen a lot of her earlier movies. Um, I she, She's worked with some really amazing talents. I mean, Near Dark, I think, is the one I remember the most. I know she did Blue Still with um, Jamie Lee Curtis and The Loveless with uh, Willem Dafoe. So she knows how to work with some of the best actors in Hollywood from that time period. Uh, but Near Dark is sort of the one I, I remember the most. Um, the other one's sort of just... I don't know, collide together for me because I saw them when I was very young, um, especially Point Break. I don't remember Point Break that well because I saw that when I was, had to have been like, you know, nine, 10, something like that. Really? See, like, I remember, it might have just been though because I grew up in Florida, but they used to play Point Break on the television like all the time. Uh, I mean, it was just like insane, I think, how many times I saw that movie on TV as a kid. Um, Stranger, Strange Days, too, from what I remember, um, that was like a really popular one on the sci-fi channel in like the late 90s. Um, I actually would probably rank it higher if I hadn't uh, seen it so many times on sci-fi over the years. Um, but yeah, no, I can see where you're coming from, though. Um, okay, so... There's so she really hasn't oh. done many movies lately, though, has she? No, I don't. I, she's done like what, maybe one movie since Zero Dark Thirty or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think the last movie she did was Detroit, and that was back in 2017. So maybe, maybe Zero Dark Thirty killed her career. I don't know. <laughs> really, you would? I mean, didn't she win a bunch of Oscars or something like that? For she it? did, but that it's really weird. I'm only seeing she has only literally done one movie since then. She's done some short films, but. She hasn't done a movie since 2017, so 
That's oh. wild to me. Yeah. And, and you know what? To be fair about Zero Dark Thirty real quick, I, I mean, if you take the – I mean, there's no way to separate it from the politics. But I, I thought the, the, the story of the main character and her emotional states throughout was really interesting. I just could not deal with the – I mean, th- this gets back to what you were saying. I mean, Bigelow is such a promising director, and then she has to do a movie like Zero Dark Thirty – and the Hurt Locker, and even those films, I think they're well done. But it's just like wow. Yeah, from what, an execution standpoint, I mean, yeah, you can't really fault. I mean, she, like you said before, she's an extremely talented director. I mean, I in some ways, I think she's actually a better pure director, possibly even than her ex husband. Um, I mean, certainly she did a lot. I think with um, far less money uh, with some of the you know films we've just been talking about than uh, Cameron did, but. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, part of me, the fanboy, you know, makes to think maybe she, um, you know, had a crisis of faith after Zero Dark Thirty, maybe had one of those, um, what have I done with my life kind of moments. Um, probably not, but, you know, we can always hope and maybe she'll come back with uh, something really cool here in the next uh, decade. Real, real quick, if I could, I, I do think it's important to note that, uh, you know, when The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty got made, I mean, it was not a good time to be speaking out uh, against the wars in a lot of ways. I mean, I know Zero Dark Thirty came out a little bit later. I think it was more acceptable back then. But yeah, I think like 2012. Locker, but yeah, Zero Dark yeah, yeah. Thirty is the one I think that's really like sus. I mean, Hurt Locker, I yeah. definitely agree that came out. I think that was actually still in the Bush years. So like I can see why she felt the need to make that one in a certain way. So what, what I was going to say is, I mean, there were directors that tried to do what I would call anti-war films. De Palma did one. Brian De Palma uh, redacted, which, I mean, it's not the best movie, but I think it was hated in part because of how anti-war it was. So I don't know. I I think there's sort of a sanction against making anti-war films in this country. Oh, no, I totally agree. And I mean, I just, you know, really, I think since the Vietnam era, especially, I mean, of course, the U.S. military, um, you know, in and of itself plays such a big role in that, because I mean, if they, uh, you know, a lot of times they have to have script approval when I mean, films involving the US military, and if they don't sign off on it, they're not going to give the filmmakers access to equipment, extras, you know, advisors, all this other kind of stuff. And I mean, it can be really expensive to film, um, you know, a war movie without the uh, sponsorship of the U.S. military. I mean, of course, um, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now is kind of a a classic example when you kind of go that route without the support of the military. But um, yeah, that's a very valid point. I mean, certainly that didn't stop those productions like Platoon and what have you in the 1980s. But um, the climate is even more extreme than it was since the Reagan era. I mean, there's really almost no anti-war movement left in general. So in that context, it probably shouldn't surprise us that this was the kind of stuff Bigelow was doing. Okay, there's uh, there was someone else involved in this project whose contributions I think are greatly overlooked, and that's Eric Redd. Prior to hooking up with Bigelow for Near Dark, Red wrote the script for another horror classic called The Hitcher, uh, which Near Dark bears some similarities to. And then he went on to co-write Blue Steel with Bigelow as well. Red has lived a very interesting life since then. 
In 2000, he was involved in a fatal car crash after killing two pedestrians. Red emerged from his vehicle and attempted to slit the throat, uh, his throat with a piece of glass. Uh, later, he was sued in a civil lawsuit. It was a bizarre series of events that basically led to the end of his career. Uh, and it's, you know, again, if you've seen The Hitcher, um, this is a rather strange way for his career to end, to put it mildly. Uh, any thoughts on this, Kai? I did not. I, I forgot about the uh, the car crash. I, I've seen a few of his films, though. Um, the Hitcher, I know he did Cohen and Tate as well, uh, which was a nice little movie with um, Roy Scheider and Adam Baldwin. Um, he also did a, a werewolf movie that I like a lot called Bad Moon, but I, I was unaware of the yeah. Bad Moon is another incident. kind of underrated uh, vampire, excuse me, werewolf movie that uh, we I think we had forgotten the last time around. But yeah, that's a good one too. Uh, but yeah, no, the whole thing with the car crash is just freaking. Uh, it's unreal. It really is. <laughs> no, definitely. I, I was going to say too. I think um, it, it's tough to make this call, but. Uh, I, I think the Hitcher edges out uh, near Dark for me just a little bit, but they are very similar movies in a weird way. And, um, you know, of course, they're both road movies, essentially. So made very uh, close together, too. I think Near Dark was made only a year later. Yeah, I believe that's correct. And yeah, no, I totally agree. There's sort of the component of like the road movie in both. I mean, there's also kind of a heavy element of the American Southwest in it and uh, yeah, they're both just really fascinating movies from that era. Um, and then, of course, two great villains in both, too, with Rector Hauer on the one hand and uh, Lance Henriksen's character from uh, Near Dark. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend uh, The Hitcher, you know, for guys who, for those of you who are fans of uh, Near Dark, if you haven't already seen it. It's um, or just in general, if you like 80s uh, horror, you know, slasher thrillers, whatever. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot to take in from The Hitcher. All right, so Near Dark, it's got a great cast, especially if you're a fan of James Cameron's 80s works, and I will confess I am a fan of Cameron's 80s works. Um, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein. Jeanette, Jeanette, is that it? Okay, yeah, yeah. It's nearly an Aliens reunion, and that's just scratching the surface. You've also got some compelling actors like James Gross, who I think just a couple of years later would star in the second Phantasm movie, which is another one I'm a big fan of. And Theresa Randall showing up in very minor roles. Uh, she was, what, Will Smith's wife and Bad Boys, or Martin Lawrence's wife, I think. Um, are you in love with this cast as I am? I am, but I'm, I'm sad you didn't mention, uh, I, I know he's sort of more of a <laughs> a character actor that's in very, very low budget genre films, but uh, Tim Thomerson is uh, Lloyd Colton who plays um, Adrian Pazdar, uh, Caleb's dad in this, uh, who he was in. Um, oh, I, I believe he's, he, he was in a lot of movies like um, the Trancers films and a bunch of full moon movies like um, uh, doll man, doll man versus demonic toys, but he, he's a really good character actor. Um, he feels sort of out of place in this at times. Um, you know, the, the father and daughter duo that's looking for Caleb throughout the movie. Uh, but I'm, I've always been a big fan of him, so it was great to see him in this. And for me, the standouts here are uh, Lance Henriksen, of course, because I think anything Henriksen in, is in is, you know, brilliant. Uh, he always brings his A-game. Um, 
Though Paxton um, is really, really sadistic in this as Severin. And I even, uh, I really liked um, Jenny Wright as May, uh, the sort of love interest to Adrian Pazdar here. So that's sort of my take on the cast. Uh, it, there is a very, yeah, it's very much like an ensemble in a weird way. And I forgot that James LaGrosse from Phantasm 2 was in this. But uh, yeah, you're right. He was um, as one of the Cowboys. Yeah, it's like a very minor role. I think he only maybe even has like one or two lines. It's like in kind of like a bar scene or something like that. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, really, you can't go wrong with Lance Hendricks. And of course, he was um, the star on one of my all-time favorite TV shows, uh, Millennium, uh, which was uh, Chris Carter's follow-up to The X-Files. Great series, great character that he got to play in that, and Frank Black. And, um, uh, you know, again, if you grew up on, you know, some of these 80s movies, I mean, he was in a lot of great ones besides the Cameron ones. You could also kind of bring up like Pumpkinhead or something like that. And um Bill Paxton, yeah, he was another guy, uh, sadly missed. And um, Bill Paxton, the only guy that's been in a Predator movie, an Alien movie, and a Terminator movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hadn't realized that. Man, he was. Um, he was yeah, in, because he's in Aliens, Predator Two, and then I forget which Terminator he's, he's in. in. The first Terminator. The first one, he's one. Yeah. He's like one of the punk rockers at like the very beginning in that one. Um, so yeah, that's nuts, man. Um, and then, yeah, of course he did a, a great horror movie in the knots. I think it was frailty if I remember correctly or something yes. like that, yeah. which uh, I think he also like wrote and directed. Um, yeah, tragically he kind of died, I think in his early sixties, uh, not really that long ago, but yeah, he was, uh, another guy. I mean, if you grew up in the eighties and nineties, I mean, he was just in so much material at that point. Of course, Twister, I guess was probably the movie a lot of people remember him from, but yes, uh, he definitely showed a fair share of range in his day. Uh, okay, Gigi, how does Near Dark rank for you in terms of vampire movies? As I said at the onset, I'm not really a big fan of it, but um, you know, I'm curious about your take on this subject. I really like Near Dark, but I almost... The, the vampire element of it is sort of in the background for me. Like when I think of vampire movies, I don't necessarily think of Near Dark. I, I feel like... What what stands out to me most about Near Dark is like the Western slash crime elements and you have the vampire elements sort of mixed into it. Like it's not, I, I think it's very interesting how Near Dark handles the vampire element. I don't think they ever use the word vampire in the film, um, which is kind of interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually do, I think, leave it somewhat ambiguous. I mean, you kind of assume that they're vampires, but they're obviously not conventional vampires. I mean, um, the main character is essentially cured by a, uh, what, a blood transfusion or something yes. like that. Yes. Well, can you imagine? I, I mean, while I was watching this again in, in preparation for this, uh, I was thinking about that, the opening scenes, you know, where you have Jenny Wright's character bite Caleb, right? And, you know, he, he's running out into the, the sunlight and you see him like steaming up and he starts lighting on fire. If you went into this movie in the 80s, like at a theater uh, without any synopsis or knowing anything about what it was, you could be confused. You could be like, wow, what, the, what is going on here? What am I what am I watching? Because I, I do think they, the sort of reveal of the vampire element is um, it's extremely well, well done. It's it's sort of left ambiguous and sort of uh, you're sort of led into it slowly. I mean, this is a film that really builds up in the first half and then you get to the insane finale. But in terms of other vampire movies, like when I when I think of vampire movies 
I do think of movies like, say, Fright Night. Um, so it, it, that's weird to me because I, I don't think of Near Dark immediately when I think of vampire movies, even though this is probably, if, if I were to think of it in terms of vampire movies, it would be one of my favorites. But for some reason, uh, it, it sort of slips my mind because I think the vampire element, um, it's, it's sort of in the background in a weird way. Does that make sense or do I sound off base here? No, I totally would agree with that. I mean, it really does kind of seem like it's secondary to the broader storyline. I mean, like you said, they don't really, you know, if anything, they kind of seem like they go out of their way to not draw attention to it. And you don't see like a lot of the standard tropes, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's no holy water or crucifixes i mean they do have the whole thing with like the sun uh which is a major factor but i mean yeah like i said on the whole um i think that's one of the reasons why it you know appeals to me is i mean they almost uh, uh treat vampirism as more of like a disease in this you know kind of movie um than anything almost it seems it's really i mean almost entirely you know stripped of any kind of spiritual component i mean the um you know, the sunlight, I mean, is almost like an allergy or something like that. I mean, an extreme form of it, no doubt, and along with the uh, the unquenchable thirst for blood. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely very much, I think, depicted as more so of a medical condition than um, really almost like any other vampire movie that comes to mind off the top of my head. Uh, except maybe if you get into stuff like Morpheus, you know, in the comic book universe or something like that. Um. But like, how I do think, you, oh, go for it. I was going to say, I think one of the most interesting things about this movie, and you may or may not disagree, but um, I think it's interesting how the characterizations are handled uh, because like the, the vampire clan outside of Severin, Bill Paxton's character, who I mean, Bill Paxton is just utterly sadistic in this, right? But the other ones, you almost end up feeling like bad for them in a lot of ways, uh, especially the little kid. Uh, that's part of the vampire clan. He's very lonely. The one wearing, for some reason, he's wearing a William S. Burroughs shirt the whole movie, which is just bizarre to me. But, uh, you know, there is sort of this, like, tragic element to the whole vampire family in this. And I think when you see the a few of the first kills, right, that you see vampires commit, like uh, Lance Henriksen and his, his vampire lover in this, you know, you, you don't feel very bad for the people that get it because they're they're like trying to mug Henriksen and his girl. So I think in weird ways you end up feeling like a certain sympathy for them or feeling bad for them. Like it's not, I mean, I mean they're outlaws, but they're almost, there's times where you almost like want to root for them. It's, it's very odd. Oh yeah, no, I totally get that. And I mean, that's, you know, again, you know, they're almost, uh, with the theme of vampirism as a disease, you know, I mean, they're almost kind of treated like junkies or something like that in a depiction. So, I mean, they're, you know, I mean, essentially, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like this sad family that um, has been undermined by this disease. And I mean, they're sort of forced into this, you know, netherworld, uh, you know, which is really populated, like you're kind of saying, with... Um, some people who just really aren't uh, very nice uh, folks in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you know what? The junkie element, uh, that's definitely there. I, you know, when I think of vampire movies as a metaphor for um, heroin addiction, I, I think of Abel Ferrara's immortal, independent classic from the 90s, The Addiction uh, with Christopher Walken. But, you know, I, I didn't realize it the first time I saw this, but there is sort of this element of, of almost treating it like heroin addiction. 
especially in the scenes where Caleb is, um, you know, sucking the blood from May's arm. She's giving him blood because he he just can't bring himself to kill anyone. Uh, those scenes were really impactful to me. And I, I think I, I can see where you're coming from with the whole, you know, vampirism as, as almost being a, like a blood junkie um, in those particular scenes. All right. So one of the, uh, you know, kind of, I think, uh, inspirations of the vampires was possibly to sort of take uh, from Nosferatu. Uh, do you sort of see any of that possibly from like the expressionist? Was it the expressionist movement that that was out of her impressionist? I can get that confused. Sometimes. The German expressionist movement. Expressionist. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, I could definitely see that, especially with the, um, the sunlight element, because, you know, it's not like you're seeing wooden stakes and crucifixes in this one. It's the sunlight that takes out the vampires, right? And we also see that in the original Nosferatu. You know, what, what is what what takes out Graf Warlock, the the Count in that movie? It's it's the sunlight. So I do see that element in this. Um, and there is sort of a noirish quality to this film at times too. And I I think film noir was influenced a lot by by expressionism in some ways. Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, obviously, you can kind of look at something like him or something like that as well, which oddly, I mean, you could maybe even see as an inspiration in some levels for the Hitcher, too. So, but yeah, I can definitely kind of see that parallel with some of the German expressionism in this. Um, I don't know if that was more Bigelow or Red, but uh, I do think it's an interesting component to it. Um, again, especially kind of given the backdrop of that whole scene as well. Um so anyway, this film came out during the late 1980s in Reagan's America as the AIDS epidemic was beginning to become a major talking point. So do you see that as being like a factor in the movie? I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, now, now that you mentioned it, I, I could definitely see that being an element. I mean, I, I think people forget how crazy the 80s were with the uh, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, you had like the LaRouche movement trying to like quarantine. They They were like campaigning for quarantining uh, an entire part of LA uh, and, and putting all the, all the um, gay people there. So, I mean, there was this like weird panic about homosexuality and uh, the AIDS epidemic. It, it's interesting. You mentioned the Hitcher uh, because that movie has a lot of um, like homosexual um, and homoerotic subtext. And I was, I, I was wondering if that would, uh, would pop up in near dark, but I think it was more the AIDS epidemic in this one. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think also to drug addiction. I mean, we kind of had gotten into that a little bit. Uh, well, we had the war on drugs, you know, just say no with Reagan, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah. And obviously, I mean, there's the kind of epic battle with like law enforcement. I mean, I guess in a way, you know, you could also see them as sort of almost parallels with like traffickers or something like that, too. I mean, with the way that they're on the road. But, um, yeah, it's just it is really sort of interesting how they do how the uh, film does seem to sort of reflect the paranoia paranoia of that particular era in regards to, um, you know, some of these scourges that essentially went into the blood <laughs> pretty much literally. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, I think a very potent metaphor that Near Dark has uh, you know, done a better job at uh, mining than almost any other film in the vampire canon in a lot of ways. All right, so the last time around, we dealt with a werewolf cult at the end of The Howling. Uh, cult uh, does not exactly describe Jesse's group, but there seems to be something up with them. How do you see Jesse's pact? I basically see them as a gang of outlaws. 
in like old west outlaws I, i'm amazed when watching this how much the western element really comes out uh so that for me was you know what i saw them as they're, they're a gang of marauding criminals you know that are screwing up the town uh but i mean yeah it would be interesting to explore well, where are the other vampires at you know um and and the movie only sort of hints at things in this i i love how at various points in the film uh they make these very oblique references to how old the vampires are and whatnot like um I love the scene where they, they first go into the motel before the shootout. And uh, the old man working there says, weren't you here many years ago? Didn't I, I knew that face. <laughs> so I, I find it interesting. But they, they don't like harp on it. They don't harp on how this family got to know each other. They just give little hints here and there and explain things uh, in very brief lines of dialogue. Uh, there, there's like an air of mystery around the family. There's sort of an outlaw family that we never know too much about them. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of one of the, I think, more effective things about it as well, is they do leave like an air of mystery to it. Um, there's certainly, yeah, you are kind of uh, wondering, you know, what, I mean, again, it's like you kind of pointed out, are these the only vampires out there? I mean, it's kind of implied i suppose at a few points that you know they're not the only ones there are you know an extension beyond this particular family but um yeah it is uh very mysterious to put it mildly okay so here's a kooky take on jesse's group that i kind of come up with as i'm sure you and many people listening to this are aware i've spent lots of years uh researching and chronicling the far right underground and one of the strangest and most persistent rumors I've encountered concerns the survival of some kind of Confederate underground into the modern era. And this plays into a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding the James gang. And I can't help but wonder if Jesse's group is meant to reflect these rumors. It's implied uh, that Jesse uh, is a Civil War veteran, that he's uh, endlessly wandered the American Southwest for years. So just kind of I mean, I, I would say... I would say it's more than implied, right? And it, to me, it's 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 like straight up explicit, like right after. And it's uh, even the, implied that he's been engaged in kind of a low key terror campaign. I mean, there's kind of the oblique reference to the Chicago fire and what happened. Yes. You. Yeah. Yeah. You remember the Chicago fire. And then what I was going to mention was the scene where uh, Caleb finally, you know, they're finally warming, warming up to him. And he says, how old are you, Jesse? Jesse says, I fought for the South. We lost. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it's it's pretty clear uh, that Jesse is like an old Southern boy. And uh, I do I do think that's interesting. The line uh, where um, Henriksen says to, I think, Bill Paxton's character, do you remember the Chicago fire? You know, implying that they did that, too. Yeah, um, I guess I can give up a little bit of inside baseball here. Um, I'll maybe put some of this into context for you guys. OK, so. Um, for a lot of you who have probably followed me for a while, you know that I'm really obsessed with the group called the Sovereign Order of St. John. Uh, now, there's actually quite a few variations of this. They're generally considered to be a uh, frivolous, you know, pseudo chivalric order that was established around 1956 by a confidence man named Charles Pichel. 
uh, they claimed descent from the Knights of Malta via the Russian line of succession. And, you know, there's actually been a lot of interesting developments in this regard. Um, one of the Miami successors to the Pitchell Group actually won, won a lawsuit against the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, the quote-unquote official Knights of Malta, the one based out of the Vatican uh, in 2014, upholding their right to use the trademark Maltese Cross and all this other crap. So... Anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but um, anyway, in researching the Orders of St. John, there was a lot of overlap with the far-right um, underground, and especially Christian identity and uh, some of these traditionalist Catholic groups. Quite a few people tied to the Order of St. John have been implicated in uh, domestic terrorism, and um, as recently as the PatCon investigation uh, that the FBI launched uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, in the aftermath of the terror campaign of the order, um, they were still being implicated in this kind of stuff. Um, they were involved with the Civilian Material Assistance Program, which was uh, arming Iran-Contra folks, and uh, the Order of St. John, the John Grady version, was uh, helping supply some of those weapons. And uh, this is pretty consistent with that whole milieu. There was a lot of arms trafficking and things like that uh, for years. And um, on top of that, uh, there are a lot of other very strange characters that would show up in these networks. And uh, one of them was a former uh, Polish intelligence officer who had deflected to the United States. And then he was later drummed out of uh, kind of the intelligence circles here by Angleton, James Azus Angleton, uh, the uh, character, the Matt Damon character is based on the Good Shepherd. Because uh, he suspected him of being a double agent, but nobody really knows for sure. Uh, I believe his uh, name was Mikhail Golanowski or something to that effect. But among other things, he claimed to be uh, the um, rightful heir to the Russian throne. He was a Romanov pretender, uh, supposedly Alexei Romanov, the one who had the um, blood disease, uh, you know, the thin blood. I can't remember off the top of my head, but... Um, Anyway, he uh, made a lot of claims about that over the years and just in general was a very strange guy. And um, in talking to uh, several, or I should say, and getting some um, testimonies uh, from several people who were involved in uh, the branch of the Order of St. John that Alexei Romanov was tied to, uh, there were claims that members of the James gang were working with them. Uh, I mean, literally, like Jesse James the Fourth, or something to that effect, and it was taken very seriously. And um, from one of the sources that we had gathered, I, you know, I was even told that that was the big thing, the Confederate underground. That is to say, that no, that was really important about this kind of, you know, really militant right wing underground uh, that no one ever talks about. Um, and I bring this up because just sort of in the depiction that's offered up by Catherine Bigelow, this you know family in this film, uh, living out on the fringes like this, I mean, out of a van. I mean, if you've really followed, uh, you know, these Christian identity networks, a lot of times they intersect with a lot of fundamentalist Mormon groups. And I mean, they're just... They live very much on the fringes themselves. A lot of times they are engaged. I mean, I'd already talked about the arms trafficking, but I mean, it's fairly common for them to be engaged in a fair amount of criminal activity and that kind of thing. Um, you know, from what I understand, even more so with some of the Confederate underground. So it's it, it drives really close to home in some of these allegations 
that I have heard over the years about this network, uh, which is really quite, you know, striking to me because, I mean, this is not, you know, a conspiracy trope that's really been investigated, I think, by really almost anybody except maybe Ralph Gannis or something like that. But um, again, and I only bring it up because I've, you know, I've had at least one excellent source insist that this is this Confederate underground thing is very much real. And it's a big part of the far right that nobody wants to talk about. So just to throw that out there, this is kind of another really weird thing about this movie. <laughs> Now, I could definitely see some of that, especially because, so Near Dark comes out in 87. I think most of what happened, well, the, the Silent Brotherhood, or the Bruderschweigen, uh, which is yeah, kind of, of the course, Alan Berg, mm. that was 84, I think, was when they officially dissolved. Well, so this I was... think... This was actually right at the time the PACCON investigation that the FBI was yeah. doing was going on, too. I mean, this would have been, you know, a little right at, a little before the time Timothy McVeigh was making the rounds in this network. I mean, this is kind of another guy, you know, wandering the through the badlands, kind of living out of his van half the time kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I, I could definitely see how that would uh, be reflective of the times, too. Like I said, the the Silent Brotherhood stuff had just happened. You had PatCon going on. So, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that angle. That's actually really interesting, especially considering uh, the character of Jesse Hooker basically says he was a Confederate soldier. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, there are kind of the implications of the low-key, like, terror campaign. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, I do think that um, there are some... And I mean, obviously, to the... To say maybe sort of the hints of maybe the kind of incestuous nature of um, uh, the vampire family depicted in it too. So there is kind of that like, uh, you know, again, there was a lot of intersection with the fundamentalist Mormon underground in this network too. And there was definitely a lot of incest practiced in the fundamentalist Mormon groups. Uh, I'm not trying to be rude or anything, but guys, if you looked uh, at escaping polygamy or some other stuff on this it's it's definitely an issue in these circles um so yeah there's a lot of those kinds of interesting hints in this and it does i think provide a very interesting insight into just what you know it was like being in these circles and again you know from my conversation with defectors people who grew up in these networks this is really very consistent with what they you know had told me i mean you're going around the country you're living in vans you're trafficking guns you're engaged in a lot of other petty crimes occasionally you know you're doing some shady activity against african-american communities or possibly something like that um you know this was especially in the 80s uh this was very much a thing uh so real quick, do you have any take like on some of the names too? It's kind of interesting. I mean, with some of the characters, Caleb, Severin, I mean, there are some sort of like biblical and other implications with them. Yeah, could you expound on that? I hadn't even thought of that, but. Oh, well, just, you know, I mean, I noticed it seemed like that there was a lot of significant to a fair, a significance to a fair amount of the names in here. Um, of course, the kid is actually named Homer um yeah severin i mean jesse hooker seems like it was more of a reference to um the james gang but i mean may is another one but 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, Caleb has a lot of biblical implications. Um, you know, it did kind of seem like there was some possible hints at some of that. Um, I hadn't really thought about it too much. I just sort of noticed, though, that it seemed like the choice in names uh, uh, was fairly unusual uh, with some of the characters. Yeah, Severin is a very odd name. I thought um, Joshua Miller's character being called Homer was very unusual. Um I think it's interesting. Henriksen uh, plays the only character uh, within the clan that has a last name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually the only Jesse one, Hooker. too, who has kind of like, yeah, just a normal name, like just Jesse Hooker, you know? I mean, everybody yeah, I think has... his girlfriend is like named Diamondback or something. Yeah, Diamondback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there is kind of a lot of interesting things like that with uh, the names, too. And it occurred to me, too, Joshua John Miller was like the one guy in the cast we hadn't really brought up too much. Um, but he's a he's an interesting guy, too. I mean, he was in uh, another one of my favorite 80s movies, River's Edge. That one's uh, definitely a pretty uh, brutal film, uh, to put it mildly. Um, but, yeah, no, he... Uh, would later go on to kind of become a whistleblower too for some of the uh, the sexual abuse and what have you that have been prevalent in Hollywood, if I remember. Correctly. Really, I I was unaware of that. I I you know it was funny when I um when I saw him in Near Dark, I said that face looks really familiar, but I can't pin it. I can't pin it. And then I realized, oh my god, this is this is uh the the son of the Tom Atkins character in um Halloween Three, Season of the Witch. <laughs> Oh yeah! So, wow. Yeah, he he's appeared in a lot of stuff. He also, I think he's a screenwriter now. Um, he did a really yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, he did. Uh, he did the Queen of the South series actually, which I thought. Was, yeah, yeah. Actually, well, I, I as a horror movie fan know him for. Um, he, in 2015, there was this horror comedy that came out called The Final Girls, which is uh it's like a really interesting deconstruction of the horror genre, um, that plays with the Final Girls trope, and I think the characters in it. Uh, they're basically transported into a 1986 slasher film called Camp Bloodbath, uh, and it's a really interesting deconstruction. But I was unaware of all this. I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't know until um, prepping for this that he was, you know, a screenwriter. He'd been in a lot of movies in the past. Well, he uh, also wrote that autobiographical book, The Mayo Game. I think that was the one where he had sort of gone into his experiences as a a child star trying to cope with heroin addiction and sexual abuse and, you know, some other things that had happened to him. That, that's up. interesting, given that he wears a William S. Burroughs shirt in this. The heroin yeah, addiction. no, I was thinking, and especially in light of, like, some of the, you know, we were talking about, I mean, how you could see it as definitely a very much a metaphor, I mean, for um, drug abuse, really, a lot of ways. So, I mean, I hadn't really thought about the trafficking element of it, too. But, I mean, I suppose there is kind of that, too, with the younger kid there. And then, of course, later they try to get Caleb's sister. And, um, I mean, Caleb himself is only, like, what, 19 or 20 or something like that, too. So, it's, again, you know, there's a, a lot of just strange things about this movie and the, the broader cast and almost everything. Yeah, I think it's one of the uh, odder movies to come out of the '80s because I didn't think I don't think we were seeing a lot of westerns coming out back then, and this is a movie that's truly indebted to the western. You know, I, I love that scene where, um, spoiler alert, like in in the finale where there's the big explosion, right? Uh, and Caleb takes off his hat, you know, his cowboy hat, puts it to his chest. I'm like, this this is like straight out of some Clint Eastwood '70s movie, right? Uh, I, I think it's a very interesting movie. I feel like this is the movie that 
John Carpenter probably wished he could have made in the 80s because, you know, Carpenter was obsessed with Westerns. Yeah, it's know, like Howard it's kind of funny. Movies. He almost like, you know, tried to, I mean, do his own version of this. I think. Vampires. Vampires, yeah, yeah with yeah, James yeah. Woods. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, I definitely think Carpenter would have certainly have loved to crack at directing this one, too, no doubt. Um, but, yeah, that's a good point, especially since, you know, I mean, with a lot of his stuff, like the Escape from New York movies and what have you, I mean, they were really kind of based in the Western. Of course, Assault in Precinct 13, too. Um, but, yeah, you're definitely very much right about that. I mean, it was kind of like a clever way to um, revive the Western genre in a different uh, sense. And like I said before, I really... I think in general, I mean, you can do a lot with horror and like kind of uh, the Western genre. I, I definitely hope it's something that more filmmakers will pursue uh, pursue going forward. And hopefully the um, the most recent Predator movie will, um, you know, further lead to some inspiration in that uh, regard. I, I think it's interesting, too, that you bring up the whole uh, idea that the, the vampire clan and this are almost like an underground, like terror group. In a way, because uh, you know what what what's the one thing that would you know take out like an underground terror group? It's sort of exposing it all and bringing it into the light, so it's not secret anymore, and that kind of leads to its dissolution. Um, and maybe the sunlight is like a metaphor for that in a weird way. I, I'm probably making a stretch here, but no, it's good. I mean, yeah, it is sort of interesting how I mean, like, yeah, they are essentially destroyed at the end when they're like brought to the light and so forth. I mean, but I do think you can. I, I mean, the more I think about it, it is a fascinating parallel because, I mean, again, Caleb's father is, you know, a a farmer. Um, this is, of course, unfolding during the farming crisis uh, in the 1980s. Um, you know, this was a time when there was a major push by the posse comitatus to, you know, I mean, target essentially people like Caleb's father who were, you know, I mean, in debt up to their eyes over their, you know, uh, just the stuff that was happening economically with the agriculture uh you know you can almost kind of see them as like uh the uh the vampire family i mean is this sort of network of domestic extremists they're trying to you know recruit his son i mean bring him into this sort of radicalized network where they can go across the country and you know do their thing and i mean the dad's got to sort of bring him back you know uh it is i think really uh fascinating in that context given some of the things that were happening with uh, a lot of right-wing extremist groups during the 1980s uh one other really interesting thing about joshua john miller i just saw here his half-brother is jason patrick uh who was the star of the Lost Boys, as I'm sure you recall. So I thought that was kind of oh. funny. Like they were both in like the um great 80s vampire movies. And then so, sadly, too, there's also, I suppose, the element of sexual abuse since uh the Corys were also in Lost Boys, too. So um another kind of I guess curious thing about this sort of milieu as well. Well, sir, did you uh, have anything else to add about Near Dark? I think it should be a movie that people check out. Um, if you're going to be into 80s cinema, I think you have to see Near Dark. And I think it's interesting. It is one of the very few horror westerns out there, you know, and, and a lot of horror westerns came out in like the 50s or 60s. Like, um, you know, I think there was a Roger Corman one. I could be wrong about that. Uh, Curse of the Undead. Uh, there was, you know, John Carradine and Billy the Kid vs. Dracula. But really... You know, it's it's a genre that's been woefully underexplored, um, except maybe for Near Dark and and as we mentioned, uh, 
John Carpenter's Vampires. Um, you know, another aspect I find really interesting about it is just uh, how nomadic the vampire clan in this are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's like another kind of fascinating thing to it as well. Um, I was going to say the one, another one, it's, I guess it would be kind of debatable if it's a horror film or not, but Bone Tomahawk is another one that I would kind of throw in a bit with. That. I would definitely throw that in there, yeah. And uh, possibly Ravenous, too. Uh, that's kind of another interesting kind of cannibal movie, but um, the elements of uh, Western and horror and so forth. But yeah, it's just, there's a lot you can do with this, especially, you know, in terms of like metaphors and so forth. It's, um, it is really kind of just, there, as far as I can tell, I don't think that there's been a freaking werewolf movie that was done as a Western. I mean, JG, why have they not done that yet? I mean, just how look at how awesome something like Brotherhood of the Wolf or Cursed is. I mean, we, we still don't have a freaking werewolf movie set in the American West. It doesn't make any sense. First off, I'm just I'm glad you mentioned Cursed because I know so many people that overlook that movie. Uh, second off, yeah, it is interesting. I don't think I've seen uh, a werewolf western before. But I mean, I mean, the whole idea of like the, the sort of bestial wolfman, you know, uh, his his animal side has been unleashed. I think it fits well with Western. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's an underexplored genre, uh, horror and Westerns, uh, which is interesting to me because, you know, I think there's a lot of horrific elements to uh, Western films, you know, especially the way the villains act. You know, they're so sadistic and I. I think that lends itself to this movie because you see, especially uh, Severin and Jesse are just, I mean, they're in it for the kicks in a lot of ways. I, I love the uh, ending in Near Dark um, right before, you know, uh, Jeanette Goldstein's Diamondback and, and Lance Henriksen's uh, Jesse are about to, you know, go into their final good night. I, I think uh, Diamondback actually says fun times, fun times. Uh, I mean, this is a really sadistic family. So I, I and I think that you see that with a lot of Western villains and it really lends itself well uh, to the horror genre, those kind of villains. Yeah, no, I think it's I think definitely the Clint Eastwood Westerns, I'm, you know, kind of starting with the Dollars trilogy and then going into like a lot of the ones that he did in the 70s uh, were also a pretty big influence on this, especially um, what was it a High Plains Drifter, I think. Um which in and of itself, I mean, is, you know, does have some very subtle horror elements to it. It's uh, kind of implied at uh, a few points that the Clint Eastwood character and that may be some kind of like ghost or, you know, like avenging demon or something like that for the slain sheriff. Um, but again, that's, you know, I mean, definitely it's a, a very brutal movie. I mean, in fact, the, uh, the main character in there might be one of uh, Eastwood's uh uh, most savage, frankly, uh, anti-heroes, uh, even including, you know, some of the non-Western ones like Dirty Harry. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think you can see that they were drawing a lot of inspiration from those kind of films, too. And, you know, I mean, Eastwood kind of showed even with High Plains Drifter. And I think actually he had that other, oh, what was it, the Civil War movie that was kind of a horror film as well, if I remember correctly as well. But, um, Eastwood definitely, I think, showed, you know, even kind of beforehand how it was just like a, you know, slight sprinkling of horror. I mean, you could really create a very potent brew with that because, like you're saying, there is, I mean, already so much brutality hinted at. 
in the Western in and of itself, um, you know, it does lend itself, I mean, I think to some of these more supernatural elements. And um, in a sense, you know, I mean, it is kind of part of the broader American tradition with Edgar Allan Poe and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully, again, you know, going forward since, um, you know, there has been, I mean, an interest in this, I think, with the new Predator movie. I mean, you know, and that's another thing, too. I mean, you could also you know, do a lot with Native American mythology as well. Um, it's another aspect to it that seems to have been greatly overlooked. But um, uh, I guess uh, unless you've got anything else to add, uh, probably wrap up then. I was just going to say, uh, the, I guess the last thing I wanted to touch upon about the movie, and I, I just wanted your thoughts on it. Um, what did you think about the relationship between Caleb and May? Because I actually thought um, that was a really interesting element of it. Is she's sort of this piece of the puzzle where she's more like Caleb uh, in that, you know, she's good hearted and whatnot, but she's also, I mean, she knows she has to kill. She's still part of this vampire clan. And I actually think she's, I, I don't know. I think she's one of the most interesting characters in the story. Yeah, she definitely seems like she's very much apart from the rest of the family. Whereas like, uh, if they don't, I guess, necessarily enjoy their kind of outlaw lifestyle, they've at least accepted it by and large. I mean, other than Homer, but I think that's more because he's, you know, an adult uh, in his mind who's getting kind of horny. And uh, obviously he's prevented from uh, engaging in that a lot with his uh, child body. But I mean, yeah, May seems to be the one who just hasn't really embraced like the whole lifestyle and i mean that's you know that's where again you know it almost sort of makes me think of uh some of the seedier aspects of these criminal networks we've been describing because i mean you could almost see her as possibly like a trafficking victim or something i mean who's been groomed uh to be a part of this i mean certainly it kind of seems like uh, at various times it's or at least it's hinted at that she's used as a way to um Lauren men basically um so yeah it's a honeypot yeah exactly <laughs> I mean there is that sort of like I think indication to it that you know you could view her as kind of a trafficking victim and who's in a sense you know prostituted in some ways I mean to a part of their efforts to try to feed so I I think she's an interesting character too because um I mean this goes away from what you're saying a little bit but I think she finds something romantic about the night, you know, like when she's talking to Caleb and he's like, well, what, what do we do now? And she says, I, I have something along the lines of um, anything we want, you know, forever, you know, she does sort of have this romantic uh, bent to her about how, how she views, um, I guess this immortality that she's been granted. Um, so I always thought it was interesting that the film ends with, you know, her and, and Caleb uh, together and she you know spoiler alert has been cured you know how is she going to adjust back to that because there was an element of her I think that kind of enjoyed the mystery of the night and uh, you know just the way she talks about the night air and can you hear the sound in the air you know um, it's a very interesting character for me but um, that that's a little bit aside from what you were talking about she, she sort of I guess represents the romantic side of the vampire I guess you know, for me, at least in the movie. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because like they do leave it a bit ambiguous at the end, if that's going to be like a happily ever after moment, because like you're saying, you know, I mean, 
Uh, he had only been a vampire for a very, you know, brief period of time. But I mean, you know, you get the sense that she's probably been living that kind of life for, you know, a while. And, you know, yeah, I think they actually say she's been a vampire for four years in the movie. Okay, okay. Yeah. I think so, Homer turns her in it. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's, you know, definitely an interesting dynamic. And I mean, it's kind of like another thing too. you know, I mean, to draw parallels, I mean, with like uh, vampirism, this film being a metaphor for like drug addiction or something like that. Again, you know, Caleb has only been a user for a couple of weeks. So, I mean, you know, he's kicked the habit, but I mean, she's been a user for a while now. But yeah, I, I do kind of think that's, you know, it's another fascinating dynamic. Uh, to this. The other um the other thing I was going to say about the Caleb Maya relationship um, is I, I love how at the beginning he's sort of like weirded out by her, like, oh, I don't know what's going on with this girl, but I'm attracted to her. Um, and then, you know, in, in the film's later half, uh, when he has been cured, she's like, oh, my God, your, your body's warm. And she started giving him the same looks that he was giving her at, at the beginning of the movie, like, oh, and I'm, I'm creeped out by this. What is going on here? But I still love you. And. It's, I, I think they have a very interesting relationship in the movie. And I like how the roles sort of flip at the end. Yeah. But that's all I was going to add. Yeah. Yeah, you know, totally. I mean, that's also kind of another dynamic. I mean, he's going to have to be the one guiding her into a new lifestyle going forward as the film ends. So, yeah, it's... um. I guess that is sort of fascinating how there is sort of like role reversals with the two of them at like various uh, times throughout the film as well. So, but... Uh, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of substance to this movie, a lot of meat on the bones here, so I mean, hopefully you guys will check it out. It's uh, it's definitely very much an underrated movie, no doubt. Perfect for Halloween watching, too. Yes, as we are just uh, right around the corner for that. Alright, man, well, you got anything else, Ted? Uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, and uh, I, I don't know what else to say about Near Dark. I do, in, in a lot of ways, I like it a lot more than a lot of James Cameron movies. So good on Catherine Bigelow for uh, making something that outdoes her husband. Like I said, I mean, you know, and again, I, I'm an unabashed big fan of Strange Days, too. I can't help myself. I definitely would take this movie in Strange Days over a lot of the stuff that James Cameron did, especially after the 80s. Um I seem to be like the only person, for instance, who never really understood the appeal of true lies. Like, uh, yeah, well, anyway, that's another discussion. All right. Well, thank you again, sir, for dropping by. All right. Uh, as always, I want to thank you guys for joining. And with that, we will sign off for now. And so I say to you all, good night and good luck. <laughs>
Cause they don't let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace go to war for it About a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it. No need to advertise it. The weed cures a cancer. Everybody even caught a realized if a farmer don't make cash money. When we rock that stash, honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. On crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said, people always bitching about the government. Our whole civilization, what? 